this Friday. Your favorite emotions are back on the big screen in Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. It's time to greet your Team Riley. It's anger. Let me at him. Fear. Safety checklist is complete. Disgust. Ew, ew. Ugh. Sadness is in the house. Oh, no. Hello, I'm anxiety. I'm one of Riley's new emotions. Disney and Pixar's Inside Out 2. There's a part two? We're going. Ready PG. Parental guidance suggested. Only in theaters Friday. Get tickets now. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. I'm your host, Richard Schur. In this podcast, I speak with Christine Lieb, the author of Gender, Branding, and the Modern Music Industry. Her book explores the marketing and branding lifecycle of female pop stars. In our conversation, we talk about a wide range of artists, from Miley Cyrus and Christina Aguilera to Adele and Lorde. Over the course of the interview, Lieb explains the career stages for female pop stars. It is a revealing look at the pop music industry from the perspective of the marketers and agents who manage the stars. Hello, uh, Kristen. So I know before you became an academic, you actually worked in the recording industry. Uh, Tell me a little bit about what you did. Uh, Well, I started off uh, writing, actually writing for uh, Billboard magazine and Rolling Stone magazine uh, as a freelancer. So for Billboard, I was lucky enough to sort of arrive just in time to write the first article uh, they wrote about the Internet. (laughs) So I very quickly became someone who was, you know, covering technology for them um, at a time when we didn't even have the World Wide Web. We were searching, you know, uh, the Internet with things like Gopher. Um, So uh, I went on to write um, uh, about artists and recording studios and things like that for uh, for Rolling Stone, which had been sort of my childhood dream, and then quickly determined that I really didn't want to be doing that. So um, I also determined in in writing for uh, Billboard that I didn't know as much about the uh, business side of things as I probably should. So I went back and did an MBA, uh, continued writing uh, for those places, and then when I came out, jumped the fence and basically started doing the types of things I had been writing about. I ran the uh, web division of Newberry Comics, which is a uh, music and pop culture retailer uh, in New England. So from there, I did a number of different things. I uh, moved out to the West Coast and um, uh, ran uh, marketing and business development for um, a vertically integrated rap label or hip hop label um, called Atomic Pop. Uh, we had artists on that like uh, Public Enemy and Ice-T. And so my job was to find um, different sort of marketing opportunities for these artists across different um, entertainment verticals. Uh, then I did a number of different things, a number of different uh, music-related um, uh, startup companies, and then decided um, that I wanted to go back and teach. I had always told myself at a certain age, which will remain undisclosed, um, that I would go back and teach. And I realized, wow, I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to get into a doctoral program with this iced tea, you know, public enemy uh, kind of experience. So I kind of remade myself as an academic by working as a researcher at Harvard Business School for uh, about two and a half years before uh, starting to apply to doctoral programs. So and then applied to uh, the place where I had done my undergraduate, which was the Newhouse School at uh, Syracuse University, got in, did my did my PhD, uh, and then started at Emerson. Well, I- I'm just fascinated by this topic. Um, one of the things that really attracted me to your book was that um, most people who study popular music really focus in on the lyrics or the music, but you really kind of turn things upside down. So tell me a little bit about what you were hoping to achieve by kind of flipping the script on the standard pop music analysis. 
Yeah, I think I wanted to flip the script because I think the um, the industrial pressures are so extreme and so central to how music is created, and it has such an incredible impact on what female musicians we hear from and what female musicians we don't hear from. Um, I have noticed throughout time that a number of my favorite male artists who might start as indie artists, uh, typically rock artists, are able to you know, take that sort of, uh, you know, indie star type following and really, uh, you know, transition um, into top selling, you know, prominent stars. And none of the women that I that I like that way, who I would sort of classify as indie stars, um, are able to do the same. And I started to think there, there must be something to this. This is a, a gender problem in the music industry, for sure. I worked in the music industry in enough ways to sort of have seen dimensions of that for myself. But also, there's some sort of marketing problem going on here, too. It isn't that women don't make rock or women, you know, don't rock hard enough or any of these things that you tend to hear. It's that we don't know what to do with female artists who sound like this. There's no uh, sort of template for this. So um, so I started uh, looking at that and I started finding things that I thought were really interesting, like, um, you know, one, one uh, author called uh, James Dickerson had talked about... Um, how women had finally nailed the perfect formula for ongoing success in the music industry in the nineties. And he said, basically their music uh, was directed at men and expressed male fantasies about women, but carried messages that resonated with women. So this is to your lyrical point. Some people could read some of the female artists that I'm talking about and say, but she's a total feminist. Look at this line. But then you look at sort of, what she's doing as she delivers that line and it totally changes the message, right? So the lyrics, I, are, I think, are a very sort of um, uh, flat way of analyzing these artists. I think you have to take the whole package, the whole packaging, the whole visual representation, the whole brand into consideration and really um, talking about them in a, in a you know, comprehensive way. Yeah, one, one of the things that you talk about in your book is that uh, the branding of female music stars is very much related to their appearance and their bodies. Yeah. So can you maybe give an example or two of, of an artist or female artist and how she is branded and how that's connected to her body and her appearance? Sure. So, um, so I could pick anyone at this point in time, really. I mean, basically the, one of the, the chilling conclusions from the book is that for female pop stars, that is people who are selling at the top of the industry, whatever their genre of origin is, um, their bodies are their core assets. So you could take, um, you know, take Miley Cyrus, right? Someone who's been in the news a lot in the last year and a half or something like that. She starts as this Disney star, this Hannah Montana character, you know, she grows up, you start to see her transition from this sort of good girl next door character to a sort of temptress and I think around 2010 or something, um, this sort of, you know, provocative, highly sexualized, can't be tamed creature. Like that's the name of the album. And literally in the, in the, um, in the video for that song, um, she is this sort of wild bird creature in a cage, like fighting to get out because she can't be tamed. Right. So you sort of see what's coming. Right. So that's about the time that I finished my book. And in the book somewhere, I sort of said, like, watch her then. She makes a transition away from Disney, signs with RCA, and then you get Miley Cyrus, who we, we know and love from this year. So what is Miley Cyrus's brand about? Well, you know, everybody's talking about how, you know, she's she was this little girl and now she's grown up and it's horrifying and this and that. But little girls grow up. Right. So but the way you have to grow up in the music industry, if you want to have a career as prominent as Miley Cyrus's, is to grow up in this 
highly sexualized fashion that where your representation is pretty much porn leaning. If we're being realistic, you have to sort of be ready to be on the cover of Maxim uh, and, and all of these sort of other attendant uh, opportunities. You have to be able to go on stage and have the type of performance you saw her engage with uh, Robin Thicken at the VMAs. And then, you know, society has to be like mock horrified in what they see, even though we've seen it again and again and again and again. And you can trace it back through just about every female pop star if we, you know, went back through the last 10 years. So her body is very much at the, at the center of her brand even though she is an intensely talented performer. She has a great voice. Um, You know, she has great acting chops. She really um, could have quite an impressive long-term career in the music industry. But uh, until she did these things that raised her profile to this level of prominence, she didn't really have the platform from which to talk about her talent. So what I'm hoping now is now that everybody is talking about her, that her manager, whom she shares with Britney Spears, who knows a thing or two about sort of turnarounds with respect to branding, will be able to sort of transition it and say, okay, now that we have your attention, she can sing. It's interesting. In your book, you talk about how usually uh, female stars sort of start out in our public consciousness as good girls, mm-hmm. and then they become temptresses. Mm-hmm. And so one of the stars that I've been thinking about has been Lord. And mm-hmm. is she sort of in that good girl model still, or is she kind of creeping up to that temptress model yet? No. So one of the other things I talk about in the book is is people who don't fit the model because um, either they haven't had enough releases for me to reasonably characterize them yet, or because they come to market as bad girls, right? And that necessarily sort of truncates their career life cycle, right? So the, the model I propose is is sort of the, the steps people take uh, in order to sort of arrive at the top of the industry and then sort of maintain a run there. So with Lord, you know, she only has one album at this point. Um, I would say that if I were classifying her, um, I would probably put her in my diva category, um, which is a really enviable category in the model. One of the best places to be if you're an artist who is concerned about, um, about being talked about with respect to your artistry or your vocal ability, but it also puts you about in the middle of your life cycle. Okay. So to me, she has bypassed a number of stages. She starts sort of in the middle. And so that can mean a number of different things. Um, I think, you know, another place you could put her would be in the provocateur category, which is also in the sort of middle range. I don't know if you have my book. I can tell you where it is in the book. If you want a visual, let me see. It's on page 90. It's on page 90. Yeah. So, so those two, the, the diva and the provocateur are both on page 90, but that's actually not great, right? It's not great for a career life cycle to start in the middle. Someone like Lady Gaga started in the middle as a provocateur. Um, so I would say uh, she's a provocateur because she owns, she's a feminist, right? This is something that we talked about, not recorded earlier, but it puts her in really extremely, you know, limited in the pop music world that puts her at odds with a number of other female pop stars who are declaring they are not feminist but you know kind of thing um and she's also a vocal stylist who doesn't play instruments right so people are focused on her voice and her vocal performance so the good news about lord is that people are talking about her singing right they're not talking about her body or her clothes in the same way that you know people talk about britney spears or christina aguilera or any number of other people um but she's also a little bit dark and she's also a little bit creepy. Um, she reminds me a little bit of one of my favorite female artists, Fiona Apple. So in my view, this woman has 
indie star written all over her. And what I mean by that is I don't think she's going to continue to succeed at the highest level of the industries. I think she's going to have a career that looks more like a Lily Allen's, like the sort of bad girl indie star who might sell a couple hundred thousand, you know, units a year. But because her body isn't her focus, she's not going to have the types of brand extensions available to her to be the sort of mega star that these sort of major conglomerates know how to you know, sort of cross-capitalize across all their different media holdings. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so I joke in class that she's a Kriva, like a creepy diva, um, but that I think she's going to be great as an indie star, and that's probably good for her music because she'll be able to continue to focus on it. Well, because you, you, you were talking about it, one of the, the statistics that really jumped out at me was when you had said that um, the split of revenues for artists, pop artists today, is 70-30, with 30% coming from music sales. Um, do you see with someone like Lord that she's not going to be that traditional pop star, so maybe more of her uh, revenue would come from sales, or how does that work? Well- I don't. I don't actually remember saying the seventy thirty split, but I might have. I might have approximated that somewhere. Um, it just sounds very hard and fast yeah. for me, um, given that artists are different. But um, what I'm sure that I did say is that increasingly, because of piracy and because of the shift into you know models like iTunes, where you can buy one or two songs and not the entire album, that people tend not to make money on their music anymore, right? So even really good artists. Um, don't tend to make their money that way. They make it much more on merchandise and touring and things like that. That's been true for a long time. And then the sort of proliferation of brand extensions has only um, intensified that trend. So I think if she's trying to make um, money on her music, um, that's going to be a tough road. Um, So there needs to be something else. I notice what they're trying to do with her is I know she has um, a celebrity endorsement deal with uh, Mac cosmetics, right? So there's, I think she has an eyeliner and maybe a lipstick or something like that. And one of the colors is called pure heroin, just like her album title and, and so on and so forth. So there are, you know, different types of marketing relationships that will suit her better than some of her competitors because of what her brand means. So the, the smart money is on figuring out what makes her different. You know, if you're her handlers really kind of, um, amplifying those meanings that are sort of resonating with people and culture and trying to fit her in with other companies and uh, properties that share these brand meanings with her rather than trying to fit her into the same sort of cookie cutter model of here's your clothing line, here's your fragrance line, here's your reality show, you know, here's your film uh, that, that we've seen so many others go through, right? So, so as I said, all of this sort of boils down to a gender problem in the music industry, but also a marketing problem where people aren't being creative enough to isolate genuine points of difference for these artists um, that, you know, uh, will be able to uh, sustain them. The centerpiece of your book is really this life cycle model of the female artist. Can you maybe describe it briefly, how this life cycle works and what its stages are? Sure. Um, The life cycle model is just an attempt to explain the uh, different role types uh, a female artist is going to inhabit as she moves through her career. Um, Basically, what it's meant to do is explain that for female artists, often the career life cycle is much shorter than male artists. So I just look at 
um, you know, sort of what the origin of these different categories are and which artists are really sort of embodying them at a given point in time. So I won't go into all the different categories because because um, there, there are a lot of them. I think there are 13 or 14, something like that. But as an example, if you want to have a career in the modern music industry, the best place to start is in the good girl category, where basically you're representing as innocent, stable, fun, sort of cute, the girl next door, you know, something like, you know, uh, uh, Taylor Swift looked like when she started. It's, it's really what most female pop stars look like when they started. From there, uh, because that gets boring to audiences, you very quickly have to take a detour into what is called the temptress category. Um, that's a point at which people's clothes start falling off a little bit, and um, basically the artist and her handlers make her sexuality and hotness uh, much more salient in terms of her positioning. And it moves on from there. You can become a diva or an exotic or a provocateur or a hot mess or any number of things. All of these are terms that uh, came from my industry respondents. I wanted to preserve the the actual language of the industry and, and how uh, these artists are discussed uh, amongst their handlers. But it really just sort of provides a roadmap for how most of these careers are managed throughout um, the various stages of, of a female pop star's life cycle. How conscious do you think it is when managers are making suggestions to female pop stars about these stages? Do you think they're saying, yes, now you should become a temptress? Or how do they frame it? Well, I, I don't think so, because the life cycle came out of my interviews, right? The life cycle is something I created, so I don't think people <laughs> are, are consciously thinking about it. I would love it if that became true, uh, but I, I highly doubt it. I, I think, you know, I think what they're thinking about is, um, I had this artist last year, this artist was really successful, maybe I can make this artist something like her, right? But I don't think that it's... Um, I don't think it's calculated on the level of them sort of having, well, we could make her a this or a that or the other thing, although there would be some evidence to suggest that it, that it might be that calculated. I just think it probably varies, you know, from label to label, from executive to executive, from artist to artist. Well, one of the categories that I think is really interesting is when uh, an artist becomes a diva. Um, maybe describe what it means to be a diva and give an example or two. Sure. Uh, the diva category is if I were managing an artist, this is where I would want her to be. Um, it's really probably the most exclusive category in the model. It's sort of in the mid life cycle range. And this is reserved for people who are best in class artists, people who are discussed for their vocal ability or musical talent uh, more than they're uh, discussed for their clothing or their romantic partners or, you know, their spectacle at the latest uh, VMA performance. So at this point in time, you would find uh, Adele there. What's unfortunate about this category is that there's not a lot of room for people. Uh, in fact, one of my respondents said that the music industry is like a play and there is only one role for a diva at, at any given time. And then uh, one of the other categories that I think probably needs some explanation is you have a whore category. Um, sure. how, how did you come up with that category? Okay. So again, uh, all of the terms in my life cycle model um, arose from uh, my interviews with music industry professionals, most of them people who had been in the music industry uh, for 10 to 25 years in various uh, capacities in which they interact with gold and, and platinum selling female artists. Um, so whore is a, a word that was thrown around a lot in my interviews because People are sort of characterizing what artists look like, represent like, sound like at various stages of their career. And this is the term that sort of encapsulates that. So uh, I want to make it very clear that I am not calling people whore or my other category hot mess. I'm not calling people whores or hot messes, but I am sort of using the language that arises from the industry that demonstrates the way these women are talked about 
when we talk about their marketing representations or what Christina Aguilera looked like in the dirty video, for example. I also know that you mentioned that that some artists are able to make a comeback and kind of do a restart on the model. Uh, Can you give an example? Maybe Christina Aguilera or maybe some other artists do a restart. Sure. Christina Aguilera is is fascinating, right? She, you know, started off in her good girl, genie in a bottle, you know, phase, moved through the temptress category. I would say moved into diva for a short period of time. People really do talk about her, her voice or her histrionics, whatever, whatever you want to call them. Um, But then, you know, she, she had, um, the the dirty uh, period uh, that video is is quite uh, demonstrative of the the horror category I would say um, and although it was very commercially successful after that you know there was uh, quite a bit of, of backlash around it uh, and a number of other things that were happening in her career and so she actually got a career restart by having a child right because. And having a child, a woman becomes sort of what she's supposed to be societally, a mother, right? So what's interesting is from that restart, she and her handlers were able to reposition her more completely as a maternal figure, not just a mother to her child, but you started to see her uh, appear as a coach on the judge. And so she had this sort of like distant, chilly, ice princess kind of vibe uh, about her. She was not thought to be particularly friendly, but by getting her this role on The Voice, she was rehabilitated as a sort of nurturing coach who was there to help, uh, you know, others coming up behind her, help pull them through the system. So that was a very, very good move on their part. One of the questions that struck me is that um, I noticed the word genius is not on the life cycle. And it really yeah. strikes me that when you're talking about male artists, you talk about Bob Dylan as a genius, yeah. Miles Davis as a genius. Yeah. And um, I'm sure that was intentional on your part, but maybe yeah. speak to that omission. Yeah. I mean, people don't talk about female artists as geniuses, right? I mean, if, if you do hear them talk about people as geniuses, it would be people like PJ Harvey and, and, and people who are at this indie star level, right? So, I mean, there's a lot of research about this that comes out of social psychology in particular that sort of talks about, you know, bodyism versus facism, right? When you look at men on the cover of Rolling Stone, and I did do a study about this, um, you see their face, you see profile shots, you look at them, you think about what they're thinking about. When you see pictures of women, you see their bodies, you think about their clothes, what they're wearing, how hot their bodies are. So they're completely reverse, you know, or opposite ways of processing people. With women, we're not thinking about what they're thinking about, we're thinking about what they're wearing, right? So if we're primed to sort of see and think about and talk about body and looks, then that's what we do. And when we're primed to think about, oh, like, what a, you know, look at the, his mastery of guitar, look at his genius lyrics, that's what we do, right? So uh, it's, it's very, very difficult to, to sort of break old habits, and, and you just don't see that happening. And, you know, my, um, my categories, as I said, grew out of these interviews, right? So it's people talking about how women are uh, presented to the marketplace, and, and those aren't usually the narratives that are associated with female artists. Well, one thing that I always talk about uh, with students is... Um playing an instrument. And I noticed most of the, the women that we've been talking about don't play instruments. Yeah. So um, when you were talking with your, your, the people in the, per, in the profession, did they sort of discourage women artists to actually appear in videos or on stage with instruments? I'm not sure they discourage it, but I think, you know, if, if you look at what succeeds, right, unfortunately, the music industry is sort of organized around this blockbuster strategy for success. So many people are looking at what succeeded last to predict what's going to succeed next. 
right? So where's the last woman with a guitar that you've succeed, seen succeed at the highest level of the industry? Like Joan Jett in 1981? <laughs> you know, maybe Melissa Etheridge, right? So that, But Melissa Etheridge had a different target market, right? So so th- there really aren't that many models for success. So um, there's another woman who's a, a scholar in Canada uh, named Norma Coates. And she sort of, uh, in her work, has talked about how one of the real issues is that in our culture, in, in U.S. culture, pop corresponds with artificial, which corresponds with feminine, whereas rock corresponds with authentic, which corresponds with masculine, right? So if if we're funneling all of our female artists into this path that seems artificial, manufactured, and so on and so forth, and our guys into this funnel that produces, you know, authenticity and reality and genius and all this kind of stuff, you kind of see how this reproduces itself again and again and again. It's not that there aren't women playing instruments. It's that we don't know how to market that. Well, the other thing that I, I was trying to, I was thinking about how to apply your model. And I was wondering if there is some, some analogies here to even how it, it applies in non-pop settings. So like in country music, is there a similar model? Even in indie rock, you mentioned that a little bit. Um, Are there different ways that we see elements of this um, in those other genres? Well, so when I say pop music, I don't mean like just Britney Spears. I think that, I think people hear that a lot. Um, But what's unfortunate about my model is it takes everyone from every genre and says at the point at which they sell enough, they are repositioned as female pop stars, mm-hmm. right? So you can start, you can be Shania Twain, you can be Leanne Rimes, you can be Carrie Underwood, you can be, um, um, why am I, I'm Taylor Swift, right? All these people have country starts, right? And then they, they become pop stars by virtue of what they've sold. So it, it doesn't matter what your genre of origin is. Like there's not a different life cycle model, you know, you can start as, you know, a hip hop or rap artist and the same rules apply. That's what's really crazy about this to me. Yeah. You know, I I look specifically for genre differences as I was doing this study at different points in time. And very, very early on, you know, there were some slight differences in uh, sort of urban genres. But by the time I was finished, everybody said they had been erased. Wow. that's, That's pretty interesting. Yeah, and, and basically, you know, what, what ends up in its wake is this very um, specific white ideal of beauty, right, and, and, and sort of size requirement uh, and visual requirement. And if you go down the line, I was aggregating many, 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 you know, magazine covers and, and images for videos and things like that, and nearly every woman, regardless of her race or ethnicity, had periods of time in which she was blonde. And, and, and as I looked at the pictures, it was just overwhelming. You don't necessarily organize your pictures of pop stars in that way until you collect hundreds of them. But to see it is really pretty horrifying. Well, I think at one point in your book, you made the observation that if Aretha Franklin or Barbara Streisand yep. were trying to get in the industry now, you're not sure if they would have succeeded yep. um, or maybe not in the same way. Can you maybe talk a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, basically, if, you're, if your core asset is your body, and, and basically the game is to take your body and your image and extend it into as many entertainment verticals as possible, um, that artist would not have those, those opportunities now, 
right? So it's a, it's a very different game. It is not a music first game where women are concerned. This whole idea of you know the music industry being a play and there being room for one of these artists at a time. Well, if you're the one artist, then okay. But if you're not, then you're in big trouble, right? So at different points. Kelly Clarkson uh, has been that artist or Nora Jones has been that artist. But if you really think about it, think about any given year, think about the most prominent, you know, female artists we have and think about the ways in which they're discussed. Right. And it's, it's really usually not, wow, she has such a great voice. And even Adele, the first year that people were talking about her, the, the narrative hurdle they had to get over was, Oh my God, she so doesn't look like a pop star. And it's like, well, at what point, did you have to look a certain way in order to, to sing well, right? But that's, that's what's happened in our minds because that's what we see. So one thing I was thinking about as I was reading your book is you've really explained how the system works. Um, I was wondering if you see this research is maybe giving artists and managers a little bit more agency to sort of maybe change things a little bit. What I, what I do believe is that if we had more creative marketing, we would have more creative artists succeeding in more creative ways, right? You look at, at artists who are able to succeed elsewhere in the world. You look at someone like Beth Ditto and Gossip, and they're huge in Europe. I think Beth Ditto is a total force of nature. I think, you know, her live performance is just ridiculously captivating. And I think someone could take a Beth Ditto and make her a huge star in the United States, right? That would be just one example. But what you need to do is really own and celebrate their points of differences rather than trying to minimize them, sweep them under the carpet, so on and so forth. So I think rather than, you know, trying to, you know, represent your artist as, um, you know, this year's girl kind of thing, I think you need to really break away from that, figure out what makes them, makes them special, different, likely to resonate, and really go for it, right? I think that's, that's where we get a lot of hits, I mean, um, in a lot of different realms, uh, but people just have to have the guts to do it in music. Um, that being said, the industrial structure is so, is so um, sort of interested in preserving what it does and how it does it, you have kind of an uphill battle. But with someone like Miley Cyrus sort of, you know, internalizing the rules of the game, rising to the top of the industry and, and hopefully, you know, getting to sort of, um, you know, flip the switch and say, now I'm talented, pay attention to me for that reason. Um, you know, that that might might be a ray of hope for the future. I was also hoping someone like Lady Gaga might be able to do that. Um, I was hoping at the end of a pretty solid five to six year run, um, when things were starting to cool off for her a little bit, she might actually, you know, inhabit her own narrative and say, hey, little monsters, um, I've been telling you, you need to be yourselves, whatever that means and whatever you have that, that you know, think it, that makes you feel like unacceptable, you know, in the social world. But I haven't been totally honest with you. Um, I, I'm not really Lady Gaga. I'm Stephanie Germanata, you know, and coming to market as a really talented, you know, again, artist and singer who would then sit down at a piano and play, you know, Tori Amos style as she did um, prior to her Lady Gaga days. But instead, that brand has taken, you know, the express train to, oh, my God, you know, who, who can possibly stand behind this at this point? So there are all of these moments that I think present great opportunities to try to challenge that. And we're sort of squandering them. One thing I'm curious is because there's so many changes in how artists and even labels are making money and doing things. Is this a moment where there is a little bit of a window to intervene or 
are the big sort of the big three so powerful that it's still it's going to be hard to intervene right now? Um, I think I think there are always chances to intervene, and and you know at the end of the day, if if you take a chance and you make money, <laughs> it's going to make your you know you know, the owner of your conglomerate very happy, right? So it, it, it will take a number of people, you know, trying to challenge these norms, but I definitely think there's room to do it. And I definitely think I'm certainly hearing more from women, I would say, in their 40s and 50s in the industry, in, in, in Hollywood, in the music industry, starting to sort of speak out about this kind of stuff. I mean, like, you know, um, I, I think we're seeing even more of it in film than music right now, but people just talking about the quality of roles for women and, you know, the the pairing of, you know, 30-year-old women and 70-year-old men in romantic comedies and things like this. I'm just seeing more persistent coverage of that coming from celebrities who, who people care about. Um, so I think the, I think the problem is starting to become a little more visible to fans. And I think, you know, when you start getting pressure from fans to maybe see different types of representations that might start to, to put some pressure on people to do things differently too. Um, how has your research maybe changed how you view um, oh. female artists? And maybe have you started like liking different artists or something like that? Yeah, it's sort of interesting, right? Because it's, you know, as I as I said, the artists that I really follow sort of with my heart are, are you know, mostly independent rock artists, you know, um, on the, uh, you know, at least if they're women, there are plenty of major label male artists I like. But again, it's because that's sort of possible for them. And in my view, not really possible for the female artists I love. I think I think what's happened to me in writing this is I, I I find my own book relentlessly depressing, but I also think it's a very important story to tell um, because I think it has I think it has a lot of ramifications. So on the one hand, I feel deeply empathetic to the women who go through this process um, because I think I think they're often dismissed as well, if she wants to put herself out there that way, then of course she's going to be criticized for whatever, you know, and I sort of start looking at the intricacies of the business and society and what the handlers tell her and what the, what the audience expects to see. And I realized that there, there's no agency, right? Like even, even if you sort of think you want to put yourself out there in this highly sexualized mode, it's probably because somewhere along the way you internalize that either from society or from your handlers or from past models of success, that that's the thing that's going to get you there. So I almost feel like if there's only one thing that's going to lead you to stardom, it almost agency almost doesn't matter. Right. So that's a really depressing place to be. Like I would prefer that someone would want to be put out there in that way. That would make me feel better about the situation. But if there's only one way to get there, then so I feel deeply empathetic. I feel deeply empathetic to people like Miley Cyrus, who, as I said, totally expertly encoded the rules of the industry and killed it in this last year. I think she succeeded about as well as you can in the industry, but she took a lot of flack for the way that she did it. And I think to myself again, like, well, her choice was to not have this level of success. You know what I mean? So should she not learn the rules of the game and play it or if what she really, really wants to be is a pop star, does she need to do some things in the short term in the hope of giving herself, you know, a different career in the long term? It's it's a very, very tough game. So I think I, I think I've become horrified. I've become empathetic, and um, 
and I've become worried. I've become worried about, you know, my students and, you know, people, younger people, really, you know, 12 and 13 year old girls who are looking at all these female pop stars as aspirational figures and probably, you know, concluding in their own 12 and 13 year old way that the only way to have power is through sex. You know, like there, there's no way to have power through being talented and, and being really, really good at what you do. Like these things aren't talked about. It's all all the focus is on on what they look like, who they're dating, what they acted like in their performance. So I think that's also, you know, pretty troubling. Uh, well, one thing that, as I said uh, to you before we started talking, was that I really like the fact that you um, viewed pop music really from the business angle. Um, I guess I'm curious, did you ever get any criticism um in your work that you weren't spending enough time looking at lyrics or, you know, uh, I don't know, different kinds of musical elements. Surprisingly, no. <laughs> um, you know, I, I come at this topic from a number of different angles because I don't think you can understand it without, without having each of those viewpoints. Right. And you can make the argument that I need additional viewpoints, but I think, you know, being a marketing professor who studies this makes me bizarre in all circles. <laughs> Right. I'll be the only person, you know, at a music conference at the Society for American Music, like presenting on something like this. And then I'll go to a comm conference and I'll be the only one who's, you know, going into some different dimension. So I really do try to bring in sociology and within that, you know, pop, you know, um, pop cultural studies, gender studies, uh, branding, communication studies. So I try to bring a lot of things together to really understand this this problem. But um, no one has ever said, why don't you examine the lyrics more. Um, and uh, I, I'm not sure why that is. I just, I feel like a lot of people do those kind of studies and they don't really interest me. A lot of people do audience reception studies, like what is 16 year old girls, Britney Spears, or, you know, let's do like a content analysis of, you know, you know, Taylor Swift's breakup songs. And I just know, like to me, that's sort of, um, I don't even know what to call it. So we'll be out there, but but to me, it's much more interesting to study the people who make those people who they are in the marketplace than to study the product that that they produce, right? And it's it's I think it's harder to get access to, to the people that I had access to, and that's why we don't see as many of those studies. But I think it's much more telling, right? I think it explains a, a system a lot more completely than it does sort of looking at one artist's lyrics. So what what was your the people who you interviewed? What was their reaction? to your study? Did they want to talk to you? Were they hesitant yeah. to talk to you? So, so one thing I'll say about everyone in my study is I think, I think everyone in my study is uh, like a great, A, a great professional and B, um, incredibly smart in their, in their ability to go meta on something they do every day. Right. What I would say working in the music industry is I did not find a lot of people who had that skill in their skill set, right? So uh, a lot of the people I talk to are disgusted by this, right? They're sort of reporting um, the way this is going, but they're not sort of gleefully reporting it. They're reporting it as like, well, this is what happens and this is why I think it is. And a number of them said to me, oh my God, you know, I never thought about that until you just asked me that question. But then they would sit on it for a minute and then just give me the most brilliant answer you could possibly imagine, right? So you sort of think about the people doing these jobs and it's not, you know, a bunch of, you know, evil old men rubbing their hands together and cackling, right? There are people at all different levels of the, the organization in it for their own reason, sort of figuring things out, you know? So the people I talk to, I actually, I think are... are 
empathetic to this problem. They understand that it happens. They would like to see it change, but maybe like they're, maybe they personally, um, you know, can't, can't do what they need to in order to make it change. But the fact that they would go on record with me and share this type of, of information, I think speaks to where their hearts are. Well, we've taken up enough of your time today. Thank you so much for talking with us. Thank you. You've been listening to the New Books and Popular Music podcast. I've been speaking with Christine Lieb, the author of Gender, Branding, and the Modern Music Industry. I am your host, Richard Schur. Thank you for listening.